Our topic this week out of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 10, Reformation. Now before we get into chapter 10, we're going to look a little bit at chapter 9, chapter, chapter 13 and chapter 9 a little bit uh, for overlapping and the bridges where we're at here. In chapter 13, Nehemiah kind of talks back to this setting here in chapters 9 and chapter 10 in order to explain what's going on in chapter 13. So we'll look at that here in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they, have not met, they, they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So while they were reading through the Torah, they came upon this, this account as we were wandering through the wilderness during the 40 years in the wilderness, came in contact with the Ammonites and the Moabites, who did not treat us well, and used Balaam to try and curse us. And so he's, as they were reading that, it hit home and brought conviction to their lives of what they were going through then th thousands of years later. And there's some significant uh, points in this, in this slide uh, that it mentions the Ammonite and the Moabite should never come into the assembly of God. That's what Moses wrote, and that's what here now they're reading and they're applying to their lives because that was one of the problems that they were experiencing, that they had compromised and came in contact with and made alliances with the Moabites and Ammonites. But we do have an account in the Bible where God allowed a Moabite to come into the assembly of God and become a very important part, even has a book written uh, a lot about her life and her mother-in-law's life, Naomi and Ruth, and that Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David, putting her in the lineage of the Messiah. So how could that be? How could a Moabite that, written by Moses, commanded by God to not allow an Ammonite or a Moabite to come into the assembly of God, and then allowing that for David, and then here Nehemiah reading that, and the people reading that even afterwards, and still wanting to apply that to their lives. But we know right in the middle of that, and its application to the Messiah, uh, spanning time, breaks that rule. Well, in a sense it doesn't, because Ruth chose to no longer be a Moabite in name, but transferred and became an Israelite, by faith in, the, in choosing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, to be her God, and for Naomi's people to be her people, and for he and she was adopted in and accepted in, and thus, while she's still literally bloodline, still a Moabite, by faith and heart and life, she became an Israelite. So it's not about race, it's not about blood, it's about faith, it's about choices that are made. And as long as an Ammonite or a Moabite chooses to reject God and chooses to, re to treat God's people the way the uh, ancient Moabites and Ammonites did, then they would still be cut off and should not come into the assembly of God. And that's the principle that still applies today. That anyone, no matter what their bloodline, background, doesn't matter. If they remain in rejection of God and choose to then have enmity against God and thus against enmity against God's people, then we should not be making partnerships with them and alliances with them or being influenced by them and drawn down away from God. God can still use us to minister to them, to be an influence to them, to be a light to the nations, but they should not be allowed to impact our lives that we begin following their example. And that's the principle. But we see that God still always, always has the open door for them to come in and become part of God's family. Another part here, it mentions about Balaam. And the sin of Balaam, or the problem with Balaam, was he wanted to curse the children of God and was not able to, even though he attempted to three times. And the reason why he was not able to pronounce a curse against the children of God, because at that point in time, while we were wandering through the wilderness, we were following God. And when we're following God, 
God has his special protection over us and no matter what anyone wants to say against us or to do against us, to curse against us, they will not be able to because God's protection will be there. And there's things that happen in life because we still live in a sinful planet and still negative things can take place, but God will work all things out together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. As this text ends, basically, by saying God turned the curse into a blessing, and as Balaam, in his three curses, ends up pronouncing such a blessing upon Israel that even a portion of it is a messianic prophecy that the star will come from the east, and that's the prophecy that the wise men used to follow the star to come and find the Messiah's birth, at his birth, or a little after his birth, um, in Bethlehem. And so God turned this curse into a blessing. Now, Satan inspired Balaam to say, think of another way around being able to curse Israel. And since he couldn't curse Israel with his mouth while they were living in obedience to God, he brought Ammonite, Moabite women into the camp to seduce the men, causing them to fall and commit sexual immorality with them. And then a plague, Satan was able to bring a plague upon the nation and many, many people died as a result of that. And so here again, they're reminded in Nehemiah to not allow that to happen again, to not allow the world to influence them, to bring them down, to distract them from God, to come outside from under his protection and umbrella, and to allow the attacks of the devil to infiltrate them. And so that's the context of what's taking place there. And then in verse Three of this still chapter 13, it says, And so it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. So they heard and then they put it into practice and acted by separating themselves from those who were drawing them away from God. In chapter 9, verse 1, it mentioned that on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with the fasting and sackcloth with the dust on their heads. And this is referring to that same time that was just, we just read in chapter 13 when they were together reading the Torah. And this 24th day, this is of the seventh month, the, uh, on, the first, uh, so on the first day of the seventh month, or just prior to that, they had finished rebuilding the walls in 52 days. Really amazing. It took 100 years to come forward and be able to do it. And then, boom, in less than two months, they got it done. And they put their heart and their mind and their faith into it and God's blessing and everything just came together. Even though there was plenty of opposition, they were able to accomplish it. And then just a few days later, they gathered together Rosh Hashanah, first day of the seventh month, Tishri, and began reading the Torah together. So they accomplished the work, so the physical and the spiritual together, reading the Torah, and it brought deep conviction upon them. They began crying and weeping and confessing as the Holy Spirit was revealing to them through the Word of God areas in their life where they were in disobedience. And they turned that confession into repentance and changing in their lives. And then Ezra and Nehemiah told them, it's a holy day, we're celebrating the dedication of the temple. They had Levites on both on the walls in different directions, praising God and singing and chanting as the, the Psalms that David wrote and big festivity was happening. And, and so they said, go home and be cheerful and, and give gifts and eat together. And so they did and they came back the next day and continued reading and continued confessing. And then on Yom Kippur, they were there gathered together, no doubt, in and, and, uh, confession and fasting. And, and then Sukkot came, all still in the seventh month. And then for eight days, they were gathered together, reading the word of God for a quarter of the day, and then a quarter of the day confessing and repenting of their sins, a deep cleansing was taking place. Conviction, confession, healing. And that leads us into chapter 10, and now a reformation needs to take place. And so the end, the last verse in chapter 9 told us, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, our leaders, our Levites, and our Kohanim, and seal it. So they wanted to add to the verbal confession. They wanted to put it in writing to kind of seal it, to make it kind of like a 
covenant, a, 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 a written covenant between them and God that they want this change to take place. Because all true revival needs to be followed by true reformation. They really go hand in hand. They need to go hand in hand. You, you really can't have one without the other. We try and reform and change without God's spirit coming upon us and bringing us to confession. It's really just self-help behavior modification. It just works. And if we just have some kind of revival meeting where we're just praising God, but it doesn't change our lives, it really was worthless. It doesn't have any lasting impact. The two need to be meshed together all the time. And that's what we see, chapter 9, chapter 10. Really the whole book. This, no, really the whole Bible. Revival and Reformation. Confession followed by obedience. And both need to be brought out by the power of God. God brings the conviction. God gives us the gift of confession and the gift of repentance, a sorrowing for sin and a desire to turn from those sins. He gives us the ability to do that. And then he fills it and then he cleanses us and forgives us through the blood of the Messiah. Prior to his coming, it was all through the sacrifices representing the Messiah to come. And then after he came, when he came and died for us, he is that fulfillment of that. He is that sacrifice. Thus his blood forgives us. His sacrifice, his death in place of us as the substitute for us, grants us that forgiveness, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then he pours out his Holy Spirit to keep us from getting dirty again. So he cleanses us and then he keeps us clean. He keeps us from falling through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the plan. That's the order. That's how it needs to take place. It's pretty simple, at least on paper, just to outline it that way. But it's so amazing how much of it is neglected. And either just focusing on just one or the other. Just doing good, doing good, doing good. All works. Or you're just forgiven, you're just, and that's all there is. Just a God who forgives and forgives and forgives. But here they make a covenant to follow God and to be in obedience to him. And so in chapter 10, verse 1, those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor and Zedekiah. These were the Kohanim and the Levites, Yeshua the son of Azaniah, and the leaders of the people, Parosh, and just verses and verses and verses of names all these people, starting with the leaders, Nehemiah coming forth, putting his John Hancock there, signing it, and sealing the document that we're serious about this. Now, the difference between here in Nehemiah and when we were at Mount Sinai and God spoke his law, and we said, whatever you say, we will do. But then within six weeks, we have a golden calf and we're worshiping that. Differences, both made a commitment, both promised God they were gonna do it. The difference was at Mount Sinai, we attempted to follow God in our own strength. Without the confession, without the repentance, and without the Holy Spirit. And they failed miserably in a very short time, in just days. But here, the reformation that we see taking place in the book of Nehemiah lasts. Now we'll see there's some ups and downs we get to chapter 13, but, but for the most part lasts because after this, after Nehemiah, there's only one more book. Malachi, before the coming of the Messiah. And it's a 400 year span of time with no prophets, no Bible stories, no Bible books being written. The Maccabees come in and, and we have outside the Bible, we have the stories about their exploits, but as far as being put into the Bible, as far as prophets coming, we have the book of Malachi, four chapters. That's it. Why would that be? Why would we go 400 years, which is interesting because we had about 400 years from Abraham to, uh, to Moses, and then we have about 400 years from Moses to David through the time of the judges. And then we have about 400 years of kings. And then we have about 400 years before the coming of the Messiah. So why would we have 400 years with no Bible being written? 400 years with no prophets? 
No problems, exactly. When there's no problem, there's nothing to write home about. There's nothing to discuss. No prophet was needed because they were following, for the most part, by God's grace as a whole. Yes, ups and downs, and no doubt uh, individuals and situations, but for the most part, they were following God. Thus, no prophet was needed. There's nothing needed, no book needed to be written. So this Reformation stood, and it will stand with us as well as we choose to follow God's ways. Verse 28, so after all this list of names, chapter 10 still, now the rest of the people, the Kohanim, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nephilim, and in all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. So not just the leaders, but the people together, gathered together in mass, making this decision, wanting this to be real, wanting this to take place, and all signing it. And they had knowledge and understanding of what they were getting involved in. That's where the reading of the word of God came. It wasn't just a count me in because every, I'm going along with everybody else. But they had knowledge, they understood what was taking place. They understood they had been reading for now close to a month of reading God's word 25% of the day, praying 25% of the day. And a deep transformation taking place. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, of our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. So they're making this commitment with curses and blessing. They're saying, hey, it's kind of like when we entered into the promised land and God had six tribes on two different mountains and six on the other mountain, and uh, one pronounced the blessings for obedience and the other pronounced all the curses for disobedience. They entered into the same type of covenant, saying, if we choose to follow you, and by your grace we do follow you, we expect these blessings. And if we don't, we choose to rebel, we know we'll get what we deserve. So with knowledge and understanding, they are making this commitment and entered into this walk in God's law. Not just talk it, not just hope it, not just think about it, not just believe, but to also walk in God's law and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord. They want to obey the commandments, and that's where true reformation takes place, in coming into harmony with God's word, the harmony with God's law. Not what we think, not our opinions, not what the world is telling us the new standard is, but God's ancient eternal standard. Written in stone with God's finger, written by Moses, written in stone by God, and then the rest of it written by Moses, but really taking place from the very beginning of time. The same laws, the same principles. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. His ways are eternal. And he gives us the ability to walk in those ways. And that seems to make sense. I mean, hopefully most reasonable people would think, yeah, God is eternal. God is over the entire world. God is over the entire universe. I'm going to have a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to be Lord and King and reign and over his kingdom, over his people. We're going to be a nation, a righteous nation under him that any nation should have laws and rules to guide us and direct us. Then we should walk in them. That just makes sense. It seems to. Should. But for some strange reason or not, for decades, if not hundreds of years, it's been taught that there is no laws in God. God doesn't care about laws anymore. God's done away with laws. He nailed them to the cross. He got rid of all that stuff. Who needs laws anymore? We're just saved by grace. We just walk under grace. We just walk around and the Spirit moves us wherever He wants and we're just floating along with no direction, with no protection, 
no boundaries and we see it's crept into society we've been sowing that seeds for so long that they've grown up and now we're reaping the whirlwind the craziness the riots going on the lawlessness that's taking place and people seem to think that's okay people seem to think that's normal people seem to think that's acceptable just this week a, a lady went into a McDonald's and asked them to she wanted all three slushies or whatever the, I never had one whatever those things are she wanted them all mixed together into one she wanted them all together and they said we can't do that I don't know why they couldn't do that I mean I think they could have done that but they didn't want to do it so they said no so she got so mad she went around the counter and she punched the manager <laughs> Who's going to tell me I can't do what I want to do? You can't do what I... Craziness going on. Guy rode his bike into a Walgreens in San Francisco. And since they now have a law that it's only a misdemeanor to steal up to almost $1,000, people are going in openly, brazenly, in the middle of the day, two security guards filming this guy on his bicycle with a big, huge garbage bag, filling it up. I mean, that's a lot of vitamins for $1,000, right? He's just filling it up. And they're filming him. These two security guards are just filming him. And this person filming the two security guards filming this guy. And they're like, are you going to call 911? They said, no. And the guy fills his bag, gets on his bicycle, rode right between the two security guards right out of the store. Goes a block or half a block away and opens up shop and sells the stuff. But when there's no laws, obviously Walgreens are moving stores out of that area. When there's lawlessness abounding, people's rights, people's freedoms, people are hurt. Oh, the insurance will they'll cover that. It's still wrong. Still theft. And while there might not be judgment here on this earth, and that's why they continue to do it, as long as there's no laws and no rules and no judgment, abuses like that will continue to take place. No accountability. But there is a judge and there is a God and he will one day judge and he will hold everyone to account. He sees all things and not only these thieves doing this, but the thieving politicians that put such practices in place to cause harm to people. Because not only will they do it to a Walgreens, they'll steal $1,000 from you. And no, they won't be able to do anything. Police aren't going to come out for a misdemeanor. It's absolute craziness. But they get that from people preaching that that's what God thinks. This is the whirlwind we're reaping after hundreds of years of teaching that God doesn't care about laws. The laws are done away. It's old. It doesn't matter anymore. That God is just love and love and love and forgiveness, love and forgiveness, love and forgiveness. God is love and forgiveness, but he's much more than just love and forgiveness. That's only a part of the story. He's also a judge. And he also has right and wrong. That's why he has something to forgive. <laughs> If there is no wrong, there's nothing to forgive. If there's no wrong, there's no need for a Messiah to die for us. If there's no wrong, there's no need of salvation. There is right and there is wrong, and what tells us right and wrong is the word of God, the laws of God. That's how we know what is right and wrong. Not what the politicians, not what society, not what television, not what Hollywood tells us. But what the Bible tells us. What God's eternal word tells us. And they desired and covenanted to follow God's commands and God's ways. We get this idea that God doesn't mind being abused, that God doesn't mind being disobeyed, that God really doesn't know what he's doing. Sometimes he's got laws, and then sometimes he doesn't have laws. He doesn't really know. And so then we pattern ourselves after that, that, God, that the laws of the land can change, that morals can change. And that it's okay for us to be abused. God allows us to abuse him. We just ask forgiveness again and again and again, or over and over again. And we just do the same. 
expect people to allow people to steal from us and abuse us and trample us, trample over us. Because we figure, well, that's how God is. If there's no commandments, if there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no justice. But there is. And we see that throughout the scriptures, including in this book of Nehemiah, and including in this chapter. Oh, it's easy to preach on, oh, I'm building the walls, let's build up, let's build, let's come together, let's unify together. But let's do the rest of the chapters as well. Because he wasn't just building walls for a city, he was building a people. And part of building people, just like we're building the walls, first the rubble has to be taken away, first the sins have to be confessed and removed, and then built up on strong foundation of truth and righteousness. And then put doors up and gates up so that those who are allowed can come in. Those from the outside who want to change and come in and become part of the city, they're allowed in. And gates. But gates that can be closed to not allow sin in. That we need to have boundaries, we need to have walls in our lives. There needs to be a separation between those inside the city of God and those who want to remain in rebellion against God. And so just as the physical city, so also the city of God, the people of God. Us individually and corporately, in our own individual lives, we need to put up fences and barriers against wrong, against sin, against corruption. And also as a family of God, we need to as well. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So this is the first thing they wrote because this was an issue that they were experiencing. A big problem. A problem that had continually taken place over the years. It was a problem that Ezra faced and initially, some years prior to Nehemiah coming, it was 13 or something like that before this time, that this was a big issue. Ezra ripped his clothes, tore out his beard, confessing and repenting and praying for the people. And, and many people joined with him. And either some did not, and now they are also wanting to separate themselves. Or some did in Ezra's time and then went back and are now recommitting to separate from the peoples of the land and to not give their daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for their sons. And there's a problem going back, and it went all the way back to the flood. There's a problem prior to the flood. The sons of God giving their children, their sons, to the daughters of men. It became a big problem. It's a problem that's mentioned prior to the flood. And spiritually, we have basically with Eve. Eve turning from God and joining with the devil and listening to him and obeying him over obeying God, over listening to God and compromising all throughout. And there's a problem still today in our day. There's a problem for Solomon. It's written a lot in the Bible and several times here in Nehemiah. They keep on bringing this up because it was part of the deep cleansing that needed to take place. And so they made this commitment, and we need to commit also to separate ourselves from people that are not following God. Now we need to continue to be a light to the world, we need to continue to influence them, and as long as we are able to be an influence to them, then good. But if they're tearing us down, if we're weakening us, if our morals are going down, then we need to pray that God gives us the strength to be able to stand against that and be a light to them, or for us to know who we need to spend time about with. Whether that means getting another job or going to another class or another school or whatever it takes, better to pluck out your eye. Spiritually thinking and speaking and, to, and enter into heaven blind rather than keep the eye and be tempted and lost. And if we've made some wrong choices in the past and we have Commitments to and covenants with, well, then we need to make the best of it. But still by God's strength, be able to live by God and put God first and foremost. We can make an allegiance to our nation, we can make allegiances for jobs and stuff, but God still comes first. He is our first allegiance over everything. And then we can also obey and continue to commit to 
the allegiances that we've made here on this earth, again, as long as God is first. Not just in word, but in action and deed, in every aspect of our lives. Verse 31, if these people of the land brought wires, wares, or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce of exacting of every debt. So the second thing they mention is we're going to keep the Sabbath holy. Obviously, that was a problem. They weren't keeping the Sabbath holy, and they commit to keeping the Sabbath holy. People of the land, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and others were bringing, coming to Jerusalem and setting up shop, having bazaars and fairs and markets and selling stuff, and the people would come out on Sabbath. And they come in, we're not going to buy on Sabbath. Not only are we not going to work, not only are we going to keep Sabbath holy for ourselves, we're not going to go out and farm our land or do our jobs. We're also not going to ask anyone else, our manservant or our maidservant, to work as well. We're not going to even buy from them. We're not going to go to their restaurant. We're not going to go to their stores. We're not going to buy from them on the Sabbath day. They wanted to keep the Sabbath holy and be able to be a light and be able to witness to the nations so that they can enter into God's rest as well, so that they can enjoy the blessings of God. And all of these commandments are all for our own benefit. We've seen the problems again intermarriage did for Solomon and David and, and down through the ages and in our own lives, our own day, and also the Sabbath, by not experiencing that rest, not experiencing that time with God, how important it is. And the way on the day that he said, the seventh day, why he chose the seventh day, I... I don't know, it was just how it worked out in the week. He did a week, he created the earth, it was the last day, and he rested. He, he rested on that day. And then he tells us to observe the same one. Not something close, not something different, not something that's more convenient, not an altering of it, but of obedience, of trust, of faith, of this is what God said, the seventh day. Friday night to Saturday night. And also here mentioned is the third thing they committed to was to uh, forgo the seventh year's produce that they would not harvest their crops in the seventh year. To leave it for the poor, leave it for the strangers, leave it for those in need. And to eat just from it, but not to, not to make it a commercial harvest. Which was a test of faith. To step out in faith. Now you may not have a farm or may not you know how to put that into an application for yourself today. You need to see what God impresses your mind on how that applies to you, but basically it was a step of faith, big step of faith. They're going to trust God that they're going to be able to live off of the portion they had from the sixth year, that's going to see them through the seventh year, plus whatever the trees produce on their own for the seventh year that you go out and gather, and then enough till the eighth year starts producing as well. And there are times in our lives where we just need to trust God and for God to provide. Medical profession might be out of ideas. Lawyer might not be able to do any more. Some area in your life where finances are ended at the end of the or gone before the end of the month. We'll need to trust God to take us the rest of the way. And as we read in another chapter, God miraculously for 40 years didn't have our shoes wear out. God can miraculously make things last and continue taking us on. And then they mentioned the fourth area of exacting every debt. And we saw that earlier in the Nehemiah chapter, where they were, accept, were uh, extracting debt and extra uh, uh, interest from their own brethren. The Bible tells us not to do. We make money off of the heathen in that way, but not from our brothers. If someone has need, you loan to them, and just take back just that amount and not make money off someone's, uh, a brother's need. Verse 32, also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offering, to make atonement for Israel, and for the work of the house of our God. So they commit to giving offerings for the work of the house of God, that the work of the house of God will continue. That the electrical will get paid, the water will get paid, uh, be able to replace the carpet when necessary, change the roof when necessary, be able to advertise and invite other people to come in, 
be able to broadcast the services online, various different ways to get the message out there, to have concerts, to have a, uh, other services, to have Oneg Shabbat, to do things to help to keep the services going so we can fellowship together, so we can hear the Word of God together, so we can get to know one another, so we can pray for one another, and we can fellowship together, and that the services can continue. They commit to giving offerings for the services of God. And that should certainly apply to us today as well. Verse 34, we cast lots among the Kohanim, the Levites, and the people for bringing wood offering into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of our Lord our God as it is written in the law of God. So they commit to bringing wood. How are you going to have sacrifices without wood? You've got to burn the sacrifices. Who's going to bring the wood? Where are we going to get the wood from? So everyone covenanted, they're going to take their turn and they're going to bring wood. So not only are we going to give money to help the services, but we're going to give of our time as well to help in the services of God. And we also should all use the gifts and talents that God has blessed us with, whether it's fixing a toilet or changing a light or playing the congas or leading a song service or cutting the grass or helping someone in need in the congregation and going and cutting their grass or, or helping them in their home or passing out tracts or sending invitations or contacting people through the internet. Whatever means God has given to us, some to talk, some to write, some to help behind the scenes, to make the deposits, to keep the books, various different things, so many different things. God has given all of us talents and gifts to use in his service together and individually and we need to be using being used by God for his kingdom's sake and so that's an area that they commit to verse 35 we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all our fruit of all the trees year by year to the house of our Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, to the house of our God, to the Kohanim who minister in the house of our God. So the first fruits need to be given over to God. And that principle still applies today. Again, you might not have a harvest, you might not have a, a crops, but still the first, the best we dedicate to God of our time and of our energy and individually. So when we wake up in the morning, we should spend the first part of the day Praying, reading God's word. Commit the beginning of our day to the Lord. The beginning of what God has blessed us with. Giving that to the Lord. The best. Not what's left over, but the best. Giving that to the Lord. The first to the Lord. In his cause for, again, building up his kingdom and helping the work of God. This is a demonstration that God is first and foremost in our lives. And committing all to him. Consecrating all to him. Verse 37, to bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all kinds of trees and new wine and the oil to the Kohanim, to the storerooms, to the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive of the tithes in all our farming communities. So also the tithe. And tithe is different than the first fruits, and tithe is different than the, than the offerings. Tithe is a set amount. Tithe is the 10% of all that God has placed in our hands, whether it comes from our labors and our work, or whether it's a gift, or whether it's from the government and Social Security, or some other shape or form, returning to God's work 10%. And it's used differently, it comes differently, it's a different amount from, our, from what God has given to us, and it's used differently by the synagogue. According to the scriptures, the offerings and the first fruits were again used for the upkeep of the synagogue, or for the temple, and for its services, and the tithe was used for the Levites, for those ministering the word of God. So different amounts for different, that's why we have different lines on the offering envelopes, tithe and offering envelopes, two separate categories, two separate things, used differently. And returning the tithe is offer, different than returning offerings because the tithe is a set amount. The Bible calls the tithe 10%. That is 10%. And 10% of God first, being the first, God first fruit, putting God first. 
before the government takes out taxes, before a landlord or a mortgage company or anyone else, God gets the gross, 10% of the gross. He gets the first. And then everyone else comes after that. And that is God's. And then offering, the Bible doesn't give a set amount of what percentage, and that's basically up to us. And that shows our, our love and our appreciation. The tithe really just shows obedience because God says that's his. It's kind of like if I lend you my lawnmower and then you never give it back to me. What are you? You're a thief, right. But if you give it back to me, should I thank you for giving it back to me? Did you do anything good by giving me back my lawnmower in the same condition, maybe with a little bit less gas, in the same condition I gave it to you in? Did you do me any great thing? Or were you just being honest? Just honestly gave me what's mine. That's like returning tithe. It's already God's. He lends it to us to just give back to him. Now, if when you return my lawnmower, you give me a bouquet of flowers or a basket of fruit or you know, a gallon of gas or something like that to show, hey, I'm thank I, I appreciate you lending me the lawnmower and now here's an extra thing on top of that I'm giving to you. Now you're showing appreciation. So tithe just shows that we're honest and that we trust God and that's his and that we're not thieves. And then the offering shows how much we appreciate what he's done for us. The Kohanim and the descendants of Aaron shall be with the Levites, when the Levites receive the tithes, then the Levites shall bring up a tenth, so there again, tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms in the storehouse. So the Levites also returned a tenth. A tenth of what they received, a tenth of the tithe that they received, they also were give back tithe to the Lord as well. Verse 39, for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the Kohanim who ministers and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. So they commit also to not neglecting the house of God, that they commit to coming to the house of God, that they commit to showing up, that they commit to praising God, that they commit to singing, they commit to hearing the word of God, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the custom of some, Paul writes. But they commit to that as well. And so we see in all of these things, these are the commitments that they made. And they're really timeless. They go back to the beginning and continue to our day. And here we are kind of in Nehemiah, kind of almost the middle of time, pretty close, that they commit to these things as well. And then we see, again, they live it out. And it blesses them, and they're blessed for about 400 years, and then the Messiah is able to come. And God calls us to follow these same principles as well. And again, they should just make sense. Obeying God and living within God's commandments. I mean, who would continue to live with someone if they committed adultery over and over and over again and every time asked forgiveness and cried and, 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 and said they were going to change and, but don't change and then can do it and you do it again and and you forgive them and they do it again and they cry and they ask forgiveness and do it again and again and again. Who would stay with that? There are some people who do. But God does. God is very merciful and he is very forgiving, but he has a limit. And he gives us the power to be obedient. He doesn't just give us these commands and not expect us to be able to keep them. And he doesn't just give these commands and then expect us to do it on our own. He gives us these commands for our own good, for our experience with him, our oneness with him, and our oneness with one another. And then he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to be able to walk and do them and maintain them and continue in them. God doesn't want us to continue to abuse him. God doesn't want us to continue to abuse ourselves or others. He gives us the power to change. That's the power of the gospel. Not just to forgive, but more than forgive. To build up the city. To protect the city. To make it a strong city. To make it independent of the rest of the world. To make it a shining light on a hill. To make it fortified. To make it sustained. To provide spring water for it. 
provide for its upkeep, to bring unity within it. And that's going to be the kingdom of God for eternity. It's living together in harmony and obedience with him. And thus we'll experience the joy of the Lord for all eternity and happiness. There won't be rebellion there. There won't be hurting one another there. There won't be disobeying and rebelling God there. And God wants to see that lived out here. And God is able to cleanse us and then empower us so that that can be lived out here as well. And so here are the nine things that we just read in this chapter that they committed to. And I think it'd be good for us to commit, not I will do, but by God's grace, God give me the power to do. Makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between King Saul and King David. Both made mistakes. Both were forgiven. David received the Holy Spirit and then walked in God's light after that. Saul continued in rebellion and killed himself. More than just confession, more than just repentance, Peter and Judas both confessed they made a mistake. Judas goes and hangs himself. Peter, transformed by the Holy Spirit, and continues on as an apostle of God. More than just confession. More than just cheap grace. A grace that transforms. Grace that renews. A grace that makes us into the character of God. And all of these things are the character of God. Because this is God. God is love. God is giving. God is gracious. God is right. And so no intermarrying. There are no other gods. And God doesn't unite with any other gods. God doesn't use Thor and some other foreign gods, other gods. God is God. He doesn't need these other gods. And we should not, again, let the world influence us in what we watch, what we listen to, what we do, what we participate in, who we hang out with. Again, are they influencing us or are we influencing them? And so if any of these areas apply to you, and let God do his work. Keeping the Sabbath holy, the seventh day. Observing it holy for yourself and for those around you as well. Not asking your servants, storekeepers, others to work for you. But resting on God's holy Sabbath day. Three, let the land rest every seventh year. And so however that might apply to you. Trusting God through the times... Four, not taking interest from fellow members, not exacting from others, not profiting off of others more than should, especially brethren, the family of God. Five, giving offerings for the upkeep of the temple. Serving in the temple with our talents and not just giving financially, but participating in some way, shape, or form. However, that meets your talent and need and, and gifts, wherever needed, within the family, within the service, or during the week. You need to be serving God all the time, each day of the week. Seven, returning first fruits to the Lord, putting God first in everything we do. Returning a tithe to the Lord, a faithful 10%, as well as offerings and attending services regularly, participating, being a blessing, greeting those who come, praying for one another, greeting visitors, inviting visitors, becoming an active part of the services of God, making it meaningful for others, and using again the talents and services that God has given to us, whatever that is, whether it's teaching or singing or serving or in the food department, whatever it is, participating, making the song service full and singing along, participating. And then hearing and then sharing what you hear with others. Sharing the link of the, the sermons with others and telling others. And so whatever area applies to you, whatever area you might have been lacking, let God forgive, let God cleanse, and then fill through the sacrifice of the Messiah, and then be filled with the Holy Spirit, be able to walk, in newness of life, in the ways of God, an experience of full 
godly life. And I think the principles listed here, these nine principles, aptly apply to us today and aptly demonstrate what a true godly walk with the Lord looks like. And so as we pray together, let's let God do his work. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we are thankful for the example in Nehemiah. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given this person and Ezra and the people the courage to make this commitment to stand by you and to follow through with it. And Lord, as we commit ourselves to you and recommit our lives to you, cleanse us through your sacrifice, through your death for us. Forgive us for our sins, forgive us for our mistakes, forgive us for our rebellions. Forgive us for following the world and uniting with them. Forgive us, Lord, for, for centuries of not giving a, a proper picture of you and of your word. Forgive us, Lord, for negatively influencing them. And forgive us for being negatively impacted by them. Cleanse us, Lord, and may we shine brightly and be a light to the nations, and not just be a part of the nations. Give us the ability to follow you in all ways, to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us your mind, give us your heart, write your laws into our hearts and minds. And lead us in the way everlasting. And may we be a demonstration of heaven here on this earth, with love and with joy, with faith and with obedience. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.